Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, I have an interview with Roy Peter Clark, who's taught writing at the Pointer Institute since 1977 and has written so many books on writing that he's lost count. He was hired as one of America's first newspaper writing coaches, and he's worked with writers of all ages, including Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. His most popular book is called Writing Tools, but today we're going to talk about his newest book, Murder Your Darlings, as well as his thoughts on civic clarity. I always find his writing advice to be incredibly valuable, and I hope you will too. And just for context, we recorded this interview about 10 days ago. Roy Peter Clark, thank you so much for being here with me today. It is a pleasure to be here on the other end of this amazing continent. Yes, it's wonderful that we can, um, you know, connect through the miracle of the internet. I can't imagine being in quarantine without it. Um, you know, you you are working from home now. We had to reschedule the interview because we were going to do this right after everyone started working from home and we weren't quite set up yet to do the interview. Mm-hmm. So how are things now that you've been, um, you know, doing this for six weeks or longer? Yeah, it's it's closing in on, in a, from our point of view, it's closing in on three months. So so mm-hmm. it's um, it's been going... Uh, I would say we we feel lucky in my family. Uh, People are healthy. People are working. And um, most of the people we encounter, um, both in our neighborhood and in the community, uh, are doing the right thing. And um, so uh, what's been amazing is how this... Uh, the limitations imposed upon us uh, by this pandemic uh, have had certain um, effects on uh, our lives, our interactions, our imaginations. Um, My wife and I, who have established a routine, which we walk every day, although it's just started to get quite hot in the last two or three days. Um, But um, the sky outside has never been bluer here. Mm. The Mm -hmm. water of the Gulf of Mexico has never been clearer in the 40 years we've lived here. Uh, The birds and other animal life have never been more active. So uh, it's been a kind of a re-education of this place um, that we've, uh, you know, been our home where we raised our our children. And from a writer's point of view, that has been um, a a kind of a gift because it generated a lot of stories and essays. Yeah, yeah, no, it's the same. My husband and I, we've been staying home as much as possible. We do also go for a walk every day, which helps give some structure to our days. Um, you mentioned that it, during this time, you found yourself doing different kinds of writing or or more writing. Can you talk more about how it's affected your writing life? Well, one thing I didn't expect is that I'd be able to write from home as effectively as I have. And I was quite nervous about moving all my gear from my office at the Pointer Institute to where I'm sitting now, which is at our dining room table. 
<laughs> so uh, our dining room, which uh, used to be our living room, has, uh, <laughs> my wife said, uh, look, as long as I can use it on Thanksgiving Day, <laughs> you can do whatever you want with the room. <laughs> so uh, it's quite uh, comfortable. It's near my um, my musical instruments, a hundred year old uh, piano. Um, I can see the big television screen in the next uh, in the next room. Uh, I'm I have to go into work occasionally to pick up files or particular books where I have no room to store here. But there's something that's good about uh, the pattern of work that has been beneficial. In other words, I can come, I can write in the morning if I want to, I can write in mid-afternoon. And, you know, uh, if I feel like uh, finishing something up uh, later in the day, I can, uh, I can do that too. So um, I have to say, I've been astonished at both uh, my level of productivity and also the variety of writing forms uh, which I have uh, engaged in in the last, let's say, 100 days. And why have you been writing in different forms all of a sudden? You know, there's, uh, to, to paraphrase, paraphrase a joke um, from an old movie, like, uh, I don't write the forms, the forms write me. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so... There was this this moment where I said to him, I said to my wife, I said, Karen, look, I said, we've been having these wonderful walks and we've spent more time together now in our 49th year of marriage than maybe ever before. Uh, I'm going to write a uh, I'm going to write a sonnet, but I'm going to need your permission to publish it. <laughs> so she read it. She reluctantly gave my permission you gave, gave me her permission. I showed it to Peter Mikey, who's the poet laureate of the state of Florida and a good friend here in St. Pete. He loved it. <laughs> so when Peter liked it, Karen really likes Peter. So, and it was published in um, uh, almost immediately in the Tampa Bay Times and uh, the Sunday section. And um, it's been uh, it's just it's been fun. It's been interesting, and it's made me realize that there are some things that I can say in a poem that I can't say in an essay or a story or a narrative or, or, or an article. Why was she so reluctant? Well, if I, if you give me permission, permission for, to read it, I think it'll become uh, clear. Oh, okay. Sure. All right. Here we go. It's a sonnet written in Shakespearean meter, if I may say so, titled House Arrest, St. <laughs> Pete, Florida. April 2020, by Roy Peter Clark. I feel the pounding beat of house arrest, a sentence that we serve till who knows when. We do what all our wardens think is best and face a viral ban we hope to bend. We're stuck at home except to take a walk where seagulls croak their freedom overhead. My wife and I, we talk and talk and talk. I think divorce, but that joke's left unsaid. We live in times as fickle as the moon, who grins, grins at us with all his pals, the stars. What month is this? Now April, May, or June? My God, please let them open up the bars. <laughs> Pandemics are not so, so bad, I think. I hug my toilet paper 
pour a drink. <laughs> so it was it was the uh, jocular mention of divorce. <laughs> I see. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it's true. We've lost all track of time. When I, yeah, when I said earlier six weeks, I was like, I don't really know how long it's been. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> that's so. We've lost. We've lost. We've lost so many things. Um, we've lost track of time. I, I wrote a piece this an essay this morning um, in which I um, we talk about the loss of precious ceremonies and rituals mm-hmm. some of which of course are just fun and trivial like um i don't know um going to a poker game on a friday night or uh, but also weddings graduations uh, christenings all of those kinds of things and most poignantly the loss of memorials and ceremonies uh, for the dead, yeah, which the New York Times signified brilliantly on the front page of uh, last Sunday's paper, in which they listed one thousand of the dead yeah. as a as a signifier of the hundred thousand that we were about to that number that we were about to cross. Yeah, so. So we were going to, we were going to talk about your books first, but I think I'm going to switch this up and talk first about the importance of communicating clearly and effectively right now, because you've taught, I mean, you, you do some of the most amazing teaching on writing clearly that, you know, I've ever seen. You're regularly putting out great work, helping writers write better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know the piece that you had about the the New York Times front page was about communicating almost more visually mm-hmm. than um, with words, but th- there was also some word stuff in it too. And so, so why don't you talk a little bit about why and how it's so important to communicate, you know, extra clearly right now? You know, I, uh, when I started out, as a writing teacher in St. Petersburg and uh, worked with the American Society of Newspaper Editors <clears throat> and others. And um, when we talked about good writing or when you looked for examples of good writing or when you looked at the, uh, the Pulitzer Prizes or the ASNE Writing Awards, most of the work that uh, was being honored, I-, I would say, fell into the category of story or narrative. Mm-hmm. And it was usually about something big and important that had happened. Um, Oh, famine in Ethiopia or war in the Middle East. And uh, when I would make these presentations, I had these very hardworking journalists come up to me and say, Roy, listen, we honor the work that you are holding up for us. But um, uh, and I hope one day I'll be able to write stories like that. But my assignments right now are to cover City Hall mm-hmm. and the Zoning Commission and utility rate hikes. And it's really difficult for me to um, make hard facts easy reading. So anything that you can do to help us do that will be great, greatly appreciated and will fulfill a responsibility of journalists, not just to write with literary grace, but with civic clarity. And that phrase, civic clarity, became a kind of a mantra for me. 
And any chance I've gotten over the last three decades to hold up and honor an expression of civic clarity, not just by journalists, but by people in government, people in the business world, health officials, public health officials, uh, that's what I've uh, tried to do. And I'm on a sort of a small crusade now to uh, try to uh, do this at a time when I believe we may need civic clarity more deeply uh, than we have in my lifetime. Civic clarity means not just gathering facts, checking out facts, making facts available to the public. It requires taking responsibility for what readers and viewers and listeners know and understand about the world. Mm-hmm. One of your um, previous books was um, called How to Write Short. And I think that is especially relevant these days, mostly because misleading headlines and tweets just make me bonkers. (laughs) Because we know that most people don't read beyond the headline or beyond the tweet. You know, studies have been done. People have done studies, you know, showing that the majority of people don't read more than that. So it's especially important to get those short teasers right and and not think of them so much as teasers, but think of them as the only chance you're going to get to communicate what's in your article. So the last time uh, I had a story it was published in the New York Times. It was about maybe three or four years ago mm-hmm. uh, when they were doing some essays on the writing craft. And uh, it, it was very much related to, connected to the book, How to Write Short. And uh, I believe the headline, headline was, Short Sentences Reveal the Gospel Truth. Hmm. Now, that was a idea that I harvested many years ago, probably as a graduate student, from an interview I heard between conservative commentator William F. Buckley Jr. and and Tom Wolfe of New Journalism fame. And somebody had written something about the art world in which uh, Tom Wolfe said to Buckley something like, it's a lie, but it feels like the truth. And Buckley essentially said, well, how is that possible? And he said, because he wrote it in a short sentence. Hmm. Hmm. Is that uh, now, listen, you can tell lies uh, with short sentences. I don't have to reach very far for examples. You can also save the most important thing you have to say uh, for the shortest sentence you can construct. Dan Barry on Sunday, great New York Times writer, had a column which was uh, interweaved with this litany of the dead. And he's talking about all the ceremonies that have to be put on hold, especially memorials. And at one point in the column, he writes, even the dead have to wait. Wow. Wow. I'm looking at my, if you can see my arms now for a video, you can see the haripilation, which is the fancy word for uh, goosebumps. Even the dead have to wait. So that's one of the, one of the lessons is that uh, of writing short and, and using a form like Twitter uh, or text message is that people are going to 
probably believe what you have to say. So it's incumbent upon you to embrace not just a craft of clarity, but a kind of ethical code to tell the truth, to tell it in a way that people can understand it, and to tell it well, to embrace the mission and purpose of using uh, language well. The other thing about the short sentence, Mignon, is that, you know, one of my favorite tools or strategies is that, you know, think of the period as a stop sign. And we know that the Brits don't call it a period, they call it a full stop, which is a very, very effective sort of rhetorical definition of punctuation. And when I want, when, when the information I'm trying to render is very, very complicated, like what it means to flatten the curve in an epidemic, mm-hmm. you're going to see in my work shorter words, shorter sentences, shorter paragraphs at the points of greatest complexity. There are times when I, you know, we we kind of grow up thinking that we want our readers to be able to move quickly through a text. And I say like, yeah, a a lot of times that's the case, but there are some times when we want them to move slowly. When we want to render something as suspenseful, when we want to kind of, um, render something with emotional power so they can feel it. And then when we want to slow down so that they can understand, so we can say to them, you've heard about flattening the curve, period. Here's how it works, period. And establish a slower pace of understanding and comprehensibility. Yeah, that's great. So um, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to talk about your newest book, Murder Your Darlings. Yay. Yay. So your newest book, you've written many books, but your newest book is called Murder Your Darlings. And I had the pleasure of reading an advanced review copy of the book and thought it was really inspirational and quite different from a lot of the other things you've written. So uh, can you can you tell our listeners sort of the, the big picture about that book, Murder Your Darlings? Yes. And I'm holding a copy in my hand. It has a beautiful cover, thanks to uh, <laughs> Keith Hayes, a uh, great designer. And I always say, please judge my books by their covers. Um, And under, in the middle of the page in red, uh, over a kind of marigold uh, colored cover, is a blurb that says, quote, a party popper of inspiration, unquote, by Mignon Fogarty, Grammar Girl. So uh, what- what, That's right, I wrote the blurb. (laughs) That's my best, that's the best review. <laughs> so far. So, you know, I realized at some point that, um, number one, that I was one of a group of writers. And Mignon, I would add you to this list. I think together, you and I could list about a dozen or so contemporary writers mm-hmm. uh, who uh, write about many different things overall, but essentially, have built our careers and our reputations writing about language, writing, reading, grammar, uh, and culture, um, American culture. So I kind of felt that, number one, I owed a debt of gratitude to our predecessors 
uh, going back to Aristotle. Right. We stand on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> we do. We do. Uh, although I think Aristotle was short, but, you know, a great intellectual <laughs> giant. Um, and the fact that uh, one of my great um, um, professional friends passed away a couple of years ago, William Zinzer, mm-hmm. uh, wrote a book, influenced me and many others on writing well, sold a million copies. And so I don't know, it came to me in an odd way. I had a, was making a collection of these books and I saw Aristotle was sitting <laughs> to my left and Zinzer was sitting to my right. I said, oh my God, A to Z, you know? <laughs> so in the subtitle, Murder Your Darlings and Other Gentle Writing Advice from Aristotle to Zinzer, uh, I was able to uh, kind of establish two things. One was the alphabetical order trope, but it was also a historical trope that, in fact, all contemporary writers, whether they know it or not, are dependent upon uh, more than two millennia uh, of other writers and experts on language who have shared their wisdom, has come down to us and been reimagined for a particular sort of uh, historical period. So in the course of this book, there are uh, about 50 writing books uh, that I refer to. And my my goal was to to do two things. Number one, to help uh, writers uh, learn about these books and create a menu for them uh, for their reading based on their interests. Second thing is to try to harvest what for me was the most useful, interesting, challenging morsel of, uh, of advice, especially if I knew examples either from my own work or from the writing of my friends and colleagues where they were formed as writers by the influence of a particular piece of advice, such as in uh, Strunk and White's The Elements of Style, place the emphatic word in a sentence at the end, period. I can't tell you how important that particular piece of advice, which is also in writing tools, emphatic word order, that Shakespeare didn't write in Macbeth, the queen is dead, my lord. He wrote, the queen, my lord, is dead. And when I teach that lesson, especially in person, I tell students and professionals, I said, go back this afternoon and look at something you've written, either recently or in the past. And I bet you, you're going to find a key word or phrase that's hiding in the middle of a sentence or the middle of a paragraph. And if you can move it out to the end, next to the period, next to the white space where people can see it the impact of your writing is going to increase dramatically. And I, uh, I stopped saving the notes and letters of gratitude I've received from people who, um, who've shared how important that tool was. At one point, I thought that maybe I had invented that. Then, of course, I found it in Struck and White. And then when I read um, the book by um, Sir Arthur Quiller Couch from 100 years ago, who used the phrase, murder your darlings. <laughs> he quotes 
a Roman teacher named Quintilian <laughs> who offers the same advice to, uh, to Roman uh, orators. He says, if you want to be an effective speaker, you may find that you have a key word to deliver that's right now hiding in the middle of a paragraph. You might want to put it out at the end. Wow. <laughs> you know, and I often, I often use this as examples. Michelle Obama, in a, in a well-regarded speech, said, um, I live in a house that was built by slaves. Mm-hmm. Not slaves built the house I live in, which would be grammatical, but this idea that the cute, she sticks the landing, drops the mic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use it in humor. We use it in oratory, and we should use it in all forms of communication. I would say, including text messages and tweets. <laughs> Even if it's short, you can move the important part to the end. Yeah. By the way, I don't know if many people do it, but I find myself more and more having to, trying to, uh, in, in an age, in an era of fast writing, I don't think I deliver a text message without reading it once. Uh, number one, because the spell checker uh, is changing it without my uh, permission. But often I'll find that, you know, you know what, if I just move these two words around, this will be funnier or this will be more sympathetic. Mm-hmm. So no dumping, no dumping allowed. <laughs> that's, that's more complicated than my rule, which is don't tweet before coffee. Nice. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, reading Murder Your Darlings, you took the best parts of, you know, 50 or so books. And as I was going through it, I was thinking it must have been so hard to pick just the one thing or the the main lesson from each book. Did you, were there things that that you wish you could have put in that that didn't quite make it or was it was it actually was it easier than I imagine? So, it it wasn't hard. It wasn't so hard, Mignon, to to pick the element because there was usually a story attached to it. Mm. So, for example, um, in 1985, I think it was, 84, 85, when I wrote my first book, now out of print, it's, a, it's called Free to Write, A Journalist Teaches Young Writers. And it was the story of my three years as a volunteer teacher in my daughter's uh, public school. I was teaching writing to fourth and fifth graders using a lot of the strategies uh, of journalism. So, but I had never written a book um, before. And I just happened to be reading a collection of John McPhee's magazine stories, which became books, in which the editor, Bill Howarth, who became a friend and who taught at Princeton uh, with John McPhee, he wrote an introduction about how McPhee writes one of these uh, uh, these book length um, magazine articles, and I followed it step by step by step. And nineteen books later, I don't follow it as carefully, but you would see if I could show you my my bulletin board, for example, while I'm writing a book and how I organize these index cards in order to try to imagine the structure of that. All of that came out of that book. 
And so it was easy for me to choose that one because it had such an effect on me. My problem is always, and why Murder Your Darlings is such an appropriate title for me, is I'm a putter-inner rather than a taker-outer. Mm-hmm. When I wrote The Glamour of Grammar, and every time I, I look at that title, by the way, I think of you, you and your work, uh, <laughs> that I handed in a hundred chapters for a 50 chapter book. <laughs> I couldn't stop. Um, and in this particular case, Murder Your Darlings, I submitted 130,000 words for what became essentially about a 75 or 80,000 word book. So for me, the, the issue is not choosing which ones are going to go in because I could certainly write about another 50 or 100 writing books that are out there. The problem for me is deciding what to take out. Which of my little babies? (laughs) Well, what I, you know, what I've, what I teach is that um, you don't have to murder your darlings, but you can, you can uh, gently pick them up and cuddle them and, and put them in a file for another day. Right. Imagine you're saving them for the next book. <laughs> but it's very hard. Um, so, so for me, I have to lower my standards. Before I write a, a first draft, I have to write a zero draft. I have to write earlier than I think I can. And then as I get close, as I go through the, the, the process, whether it's an essay uh, or a, uh, a book, raise my standards, become more demanding. And to make sure that I'm selecting material, not just my best material or the stuff that I like the best, but the the material that most closely supports the focus of the work. Because learning from the writing process from Donald Murray, a great teacher, process was important to him and for all of us who worked with him. But focus was the center of the process, the ability to understand what this is really about, what you're trying to say, what you want your readers to learn and pass along uh, to others. And uh, that takes takes time and it takes a kind of discipline. Yeah, no, it does. Well, thank you. And I'm especially glad to hear that you're, you feel like you're being so productive right now because I want you to keep writing because we absolutely need your work and good advice that you're constantly putting out there, whether it's on the, the Pointer Institute website or in all your books. So thank you so much for, for sharing some of your wisdom with us today. And if I can return the compliment, uh, let's say that not everybody who writes about writing in uh, grammar and language can do it well long in a book and do it well short in tweet and the other forms that you're working in, Mignon. So uh, you're my go-to person when I'm trying to solve that kind of a problem. <laughs> well, thank you. You're too kind. Well, that was, um, that was again, Roy Peter Clark. His newest book is Murder Your Darlings. Um, Roy, where is the best place for people to find you online? Where do you hang out? They can they can find me, I think, in, th- in three or four locations. Uh, I write most often for the Pointer Institute website. Pointer is a school for journalism and democracy with a long tradition of teaching writing. So that's Pointer, with a Y, P-O-Y-N-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Um, I, I write on Twitter, 
almost uh, every day in that section of Twitter uh, where language nerds like to hang out and uh, virtually smoke cigarettes and drink uh, margaritas. Um, so there's a lot to learn uh, from the, the word people on, on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Facebook. And I also write um, for uh, the Neiman Storyboard, uh, edited by the great Jackie Banashinsky. Uh, so uh, very much, uh, they attend most often to interest uh, to um, talks of storytelling, uh, narrative, but also language use. Wonderful! Thank you so much. Have a good day, Roy. Thank you, Mignon. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. Like Roy, I also hang out on Twitter, and my username is Grammar Girl. You can find a transcript of this podcast and all the others at quickanddirtytips.com. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sims, and that's all. Thanks for listening. Bye.